Hi everyone, welcome to EFG's Beyond the Benchmark podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And uh, today we have a, a deep dive into private markets. And uh, to uh, help me navigate through that, I have uh, Manuel Kaiser. So Manuel, welcome. Yes, thank you very much, Moos. Um, I hope I can help out here a little bit. So thank you very much. I guess the first uh, uh, quick question is uh, is yourself. Uh, maybe you can give us a quick uh, background uh, to yourself and uh, your experiences and um, uh, and you know, what you've been sort of focused on over, over the last few years. I probably would describe myself as a, a one-trick pony given I spent all my professional career on the private market side. Um, really, you know, um, in, in different functions, I would say. You know, I have been uh, an investor for the last 10 year plus um, on one, the private banking side, but as well, I worked for a large uh, multifamily office in Switzerland. And then I also, I guess, learned the, the technical aspects of private markets investing, you know, earlier in my career. Um, you know, I was um, in strategy consulting, helping out companies um, to develop their business, as well as, you know, I did financial diligence for many years um, to really understand balance sheet and income statement and help private equity investors, you know, to value these underlying assets. Um, I've now been with ESG for the last um, two years uh, and really looking after the asset class at EFG and how we can, you know, um, grant access for our clients to this um, asset class. Definitions certainly over the last 20 or 25 years have changed. Um, but what are the private markets or as uh, more commonly known as private equity, but it's not quite private equity these days, it's private markets. So what are the different sort of subsectors within private markets, um, you know, today? Yeah, look, I, I think the, the big distinction is certainly, you know, the point a company in the life cycle goes public, right? And, you know, um, there, um, you know, private equity has a very active role, um, you know, to get the company to that point to become a listed company, hence a tradable security. And if you, if you think about it, you know, if uh, you and I will come up with a great... Um, business plan, we probably need some financial help, uh, you know, to to get to kind of a, a, a product um, situation. Typically there you have um, what's called angel investors who support, you know, in the very early stages uh, of a company um, um, actively with advice, but also financial means. If you, you know, continue um, on that company life cycle, uh, the next big sub-segment of private markets is certainly venture capital. You know, that over the last 20 years have, has become much more prominent um, given, you know, the increased focus on technology uh, where you have a lot of, you know, venture capital uh, backing um, on these companies. If you then think about it, you know, uh, next stage after venture capital is, is what's called growth equity. Um, so these are typically companies, you know, which are already profitable, but need, uh, you know, um, help, financial help, but also advice to grow their business. And growing a business, you know, typically comes in two parts. Number one, um, you know, um, geographical expansion. 
So, you know, maybe if we, if we start in the UK and want to enter the US market, you know, there's a, there's certainly um, a financial, um, you know, impact needed to, to make that jump over the ocean. Or the second one is certainly on a, a product extension. You know, you have a feasible uh, product uh, today, but, you know, you want to extend that further. So here, growth equity really can help. And, and typically, you know, these companies um, are little to have little to no leverage and need, you know, equity to grow the business. Um, when you talk about private equity, you know, typically you talk about buyout funds. You know, that's kind of, you know, uh, the common word used um, if people talk about private equity, they often mean buyout funds. And obviously, you know, um, that market has grown significantly um, over the last 20 years. Um, if you look at the statistics, you had a ninefold increase, you know, over the last um, 20 years in terms of, you know, um, AUM being managed through kind of buyout um, opportunities. Um, you know, then at some point, obviously, the company can decide to go public or maybe remains private. But also, you know, sometimes um, if you have a publicly uh, listed company, private equity, you know, is involved, um, you know, for example, with a delisting of a publicly traded company. You know, one, one good example is probably Dell Computer, you know, who was a publicly company who then got uh, delisted by Silver Lake, um, you know, one of the large buyout investors on the technology software focus. And also, you know, sometimes if, if companies get into distress and troubles, um, you know, you have a, an additional kind of sub-segment, um, which is called distress debt, where as well, you know, private equity is very active in, in terms of, you know, supporting companies, you know, who, who, who are in trouble more or less. And then on the, um, I guess, on the debt side uh, as well, which is obviously an also uh, a fast-growing asset class, uh, how, how does that uh, work? There you have to distinction again, kind of different, um, you know, entry points on the capital structure. Um, what you have seen, for example, you know, post the financial uh, crisis, uh, a regulation kicked in, especially with the large banks. So it got much more restrictive um, for, you know, banks to lend out uh, larger amounts of um, debt to companies. Often, you know, um, there's a limit on the amount. Hence, the big banks, for example, need to syndicate out, you know, larger loans um, uh, between themselves. Uh, and here, I think this, you know, change in regulation opened up actually you know, kind of a new sub-asset class, which is direct lending. Um, so these are um, private companies uh, which go to investors and, you know, um, um, raise a fund. And with that fund, you know, they are providing lending, um, can be to a private company, but also to a public company. And that um, sub-segment, you know, the last um, um, five, ten years has grown significantly. And I think, you know, the trigger mechanism really was, um, you know, kind of change in regulation across different jurisdictions. Uh, then, as I mentioned, you know, kind of this distressed debt um, strategy is another um, sub-segment uh, within private debt. And obviously, we didn't have much of that, you know, the last few years. 
Uh, but now, you know, with what's going on on the geopolitical side, also, you know, war in Europe, um, you know, I think uh, the market is expecting, you know, there's more distress coming uh, to some of these businesses. Hence, you know, that uh, sub-asset class within private debt might be, you know, becoming a little bit more um, important as we go and, and work out, you know, these challenges in the world. One of the kind of key things over the last uh, 15 or 20 years um, has been how much money has gone into the um, into the asset class, uh, and um, and you know deal sizes, if you like. When we you know in the old days, I remember you know private equity was relatively small. You know a billion dollars or a billion and a half dollars was seen as a as a uh, you know, as a huge deal. But today, and you know, a classic uh, example overnight was Adobe buying Figma, uh, which uh, on a twenty billion dollar deal, uh, a lot of um, um, uh, great uh, returns for companies like Index Ventures, who's one of the largest shareholders. Um, you know, that's a twenty billion dollar deal. How how has it that evolved from you know, where it was so twenty or twenty five years ago? For kind of relatively small companies, but today we are talking, you know, uh, um, good medium size, good small to medium sized companies with twenty billion dollar market caps. Yeah, look, I, I think it really has to do, um, you know, that lots of companies. If you're going back to kind of this company life cycle, you know, they prolong, um, you know, the time span until they go public. And, you know, I think an interesting statistic, uh, maybe to quote this, you know, kind of the average, um, you know, lifespan until a company goes public. You know, if you go back to 1999, you know, on average, it took about four years, um, you know, until a company, you know, decided to become a publicly traded security. Um, if you look at this fast forward to 2020, um, you know, this lifespan is now 12 years. So it really takes much, much longer, um, you know, for a company to make the decision to become a publicly traded um, business. Um, and hence, you know, kind of the value creation uh, um, in, in the meantime on the private side, you know, is obviously becomes more important. Also, I think this really translates uh, into kind of valuation at the time of an IPO. Again, if you look at the statistics in 1999, um, you know, on average, a business was worth about, you know, 500 million. Um, again, fast forward to 2020, you know, the average business is um, 4.3 billion in valuation, you know, at the time of, of the IPO. So I think long way of saying, you know, um, companies stay longer private, with that, also, I think the, the value creation done within, I, I guess, the, the private market segment um, has increased. Hence, you know, the valuations have jumped up. And you see, you know, it's not uncommon, uh, the number you said, you know, double-digit billion transaction, you know, that's, that's almost um, normal these days. Plus, I think there's also an increase in sophistication level across different you know, stakeholders, um, especially, you know, the banks. Um, so many, you know, larger investment bank, you know, have really built up, you know, their lending capabilities uh, towards uh, private companies. 
So I think, you know, um, with the prolonged um, time span to become public, also the banks, you know, have become more uh, sophisticated to lend against these um, these companies because, you know, a, a $20 billion deal um, is certainly not done just with, you know, equity, rather, you know, you have um, numerous layers of um, leverage in, in such a transaction. So I think it's a combination of um, staying private longer plus sophistication level across the board is increasing, you know, to support, um, you know, that overall growth. I think there's uh, probably two or three other sort of catalysts um, that have come over the last, you know, certainly over the last 30 years is around regulation. So the cost to become a, uh, a public market company is now substantially higher than it used to be. Um, and, and that has certainly had a, a, a significant difference in uh, why companies would, um, you know, stay private for m- much longer. Uh, and I think the other sort of key thing is is where, uh, you know, private markets were asking for much, much bigger discounts relative to the valuation. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, that has probably narrowed, which essentially means that from a company owner perspective of CEOs and, and, and their staff, you know, uh, delaying that where, you know, in terms of being able to you know, provide themselves with the liquidity event um, is obviously um, uh, not uh, leaving too much on the table compared to what it used to be, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think that, um, that for me, I think when I look at the structural forces, the regulation, the cost of being public, uh, has been one of the drivers to that, and the second is the the, the narrowing kind of valuation uh, gap between sort of going you know public versus you know staying private, and and I think that to uh, because the private markets industry has become much more sophisticated uh, sophisticated as well, with a far more many people looking at it, and uh, and and obviously it's a much more kind of competitive landscape. Um, which is something that we also uh, will talk about in a second. So um, in terms of then uh, performance over the kind of long term uh, within kind of private markets, um, you know, over the last sort of 10 or 15 or 20 years, you know, what are the what are typical performances? And maybe if you could just touch upon some of the pitfalls of, of performance measurement within private markets, because, uh, you know, it's... Um, uh, it, it can be a little bit fraught and, uh, you know, many of our listeners probably don't really understand the intricacies. They simply look at like a, look at an IRR and think, oh, well, that's the return I'll actually, you know, get. But obviously, in a, in a particular fund, but that obviously is not always the case. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe if you could just, you know, talk a little bit about the returns, but also kind of very briefly explain you know, the concepts of IRR and, and total return. Let me do this, you know, I think first, um, let's just look at, I think, the statistics, you know, um, you know, if you compare um, private markets against, you know, the MSCI world or Russell 2000, and, you know, if you, if you look at that lifespan you mentioned, you know, over 10 years, 15 years and 20 years, um, you know, the statistics certainly says, you know, you do have these outperformance against the MSCI world and Russell 2000. So statistically speaking, um, that is correct. 
However, I think you know uh, the the challenge with these numbers are uh, manifold. Um, I think number one, um, certainly one needs to understand kind of the dispersion of returns within private markets. You know, I think if you look at uh, MSCI World, and you are an investor and try to you know tap into that um, uh, market or try to replicate the performance of that market. You know, you have various tools uh, to access that uh, by a, a mutual fund, an exchange-traded fund. And I think if, you, if you're if you an investor, I think you plus-minus can replicate that. So I think the dispersion of the outcome, how you access uh, the asset class is, is fairly slim, um, given, you know, um, you, you're just playing the market, the public market. Um, on the private equity side, that's completely different. Um, the dispersion of um, the top performing um, investors or, you know, the top 25%, and then you compare that with the bottom performers, so the 25% the who has the least performance is very high. Um, you know, meaning the top performer, you know, have a manifold, um, you know, uh, return Versus, you know, if you invest with the bottom performance, you potentially lose money. So I think the dispersion is certainly uh, something uh, you need to understand. Um, in terms of how it's valued, um, you know, I think you have to go back to what private equity really does. At the end of the day, uh, you know, they buy a stake or even ownership in a privately um, owned company. So there is actually no liquidity um, at the time of entry. And you need to wait, you know, um, three, four, five, six years until you actually find someone who buys that business again from you. And then um, you can generate the performance. And I think, you know, the, the fair assessment probably on the performance would be uh, something what's called the multiple. So you invest 100 today, Five years later, you know, you sell the business for 500. So you actually had a, a five-fold uh, money multiple on that initial investment. Um, given, you know, um, private equity somehow needs to be compared to the public, um, public sector or the public market, um, this concept of an internal rate of return has, has been used quite often. Um, where you can see kind of an annualized performance. And going back to my example, you know, uh, investing a hundred today and selling um, the business um, five years later, um, that actually, if you have an IRR and calculate that, um, you get to something um, like 17% uh, annualized performance or this, this thing called um, internal rate of return. Um, if you do the same exercise and you actually sell the business not in five years, then rather three years, your IRR or the annualized performance actually jumps up significantly. You know, you're almost at the 38% annualized performance. So investing 100 today, selling the business um, three years later at 500, you know, is a very, very high IRR. And I think to a certain extent that's misleading because it tries to um, just find an annualized return so you can compare it against the public market. But I think, you know, 
in private equity, the, the probably the fair assessment of a performance is, you know, how much did you invest? How much did you get back at the end of the day? And IRR also can be tweaked quite a bit, you know, um, these days, you know, the market uh, as always has become more sophisticated. So you, you see now, you know, funds using credit lines to increase the IRR, given, you know, you transact not really on equity, rather on a, on a credit line. Um, you know, um, shockingly also sometimes funds have leverage on it. You know, again, that's all to be done to increase the IRR, hence looking, um, you know, to show an outperformance against the public market. So I think you need to be very careful in terms of comparing um, um, annual um, return numbers on the private equity side with, you know, kind of uh, on the public side. No, that's a very, very important point. I think um, <clears throat> moving on then on to the dispersion of returns, and I think you made a very, very good point. Um, if you look at, say, the public markets, the dispersion of returns are kind of relatively narrow. So if you take, I don't know, an index um, and a fund will typically have a, you know, tracking error, I don't know, somewhere between 5 and 7%, you know, you're never going to be too far away from the index uh, when it comes to the, um, when it comes to the, to, to the return. But in, but in private equity in particular, that dispersion of returns is much, much, much bigger where you've got the top managers, uh, you know, as you said, uh, um, you know, could be making huge returns and the bottom 25% could be losing money over the same period, um, you won't necessarily see that too much in the public markets, but you certainly see that in uh, private markets. Um, and I guess then, you know, the, the kind of simple uh, corollary of that is that the um, you know, manager selection becomes super important uh, in terms of making that decision. Um so in your experience, uh, you know, that you've got this huge, huge dispersion of returns, major selections, are, you know, becomes, uh, you know, much, much more important. In your experience, what are the sort of key things that you're looking for when you are, you know, allocating capital to a, uh, to a manager? And, you know, what are the sort of the big pitfalls that people often make? Yes, uh, let me maybe answer this in, in two stages. Uh, I think, you know, um, what we do on paper, stage one, and the second part of the answer is, uh, I think, you know, comes more on to experience, not the numbers, um, which are very important. And I think I will touch on the pitfalls as well. Um, you know, um, on a high level, um, obviously, we, we go through a very diligent, um, you know, set, uh, sub set of questions. You know, we certainly look at the, the team, you know, kind of, you know, the people, uh, the investors making decisions, you know, how experienced are they really in doing that? Uh, because you often see, um, I call them the tourists as well, you know, who try, who were successful, um, you know, maybe as entrepreneurs uh, in a certain segment of the market, um, switching over to become investors. And, you know, sometimes that works, but sometimes that doesn't work, you know, because entrepreneurial skills are sometimes completely different than, you know, um, you know, making good investment decisions. Um, a second point certainly is kind of the track record. 
Um, again, you know, having just touched on, you know, kind of the dispersion of return as well, you know, um, you need to understand how these returns were really, you know, uh, generated. So the track record is important. And I think, and I think here the key points are twofold within track record. Number one, have they shown a track record across different market cycles? You know, um, sometimes, you know, um, timing helps everyone. So if you look, for example, at buyout funds after the, the global financial crisis, you know, they look fairly good across the board. But I think, you know, um, probably wasn't that difficult given, you know, the, the entry point was low after the global financial crisis. You know, I think you had a complete reset on valuation. And then, you know, if you had capital to invest during those times, you know, I think the outcome uh, in general was fairly good. But then the picture becomes completely different, you know, um, if you had to invest across a correcting market or a changing cycle. So I think that's something we look um, um, at very diligently, you know, how good are they across cycle? Plus then, you know, um, the, the valuation topic is always uh, somewhat misleading on the private equity side. So we always look at, you know, realized returns. Because sometimes, you know, uh, private equity is somewhat uh, creative how they value the business. So the numbers on, you know, the fact sheet actually look quite well, but these are not real numbers given it, it hasn't been realized. So really, I think key on the tracker is cash in, cash out, uh, what we look at. Um, then, you know, other points are, uh, again, the strategy, it needs to work, um, you know, in, in the current market environment. So we certainly assess that. Uh, another key point relating to the team is kind of this alignment of interest uh, point. Uh, given, you know, private equity, if done successfully, can be very rewarding, um, you know, for the people managing um, uh, these strategies, given you have a kind of a performance component. But, uh, you know, that's obviously on the upside. If things go well, um, you know, it, it, it's fair to share the upsides between the investors and the people making the investment decision. But I think this sharing concept also needs to hold true, you know, if things um, don't go that well. Hence, you know, um, you lose uh, money on a deal, um, it also should hurt, you know, kind of the people who, who made that investment decision. So they need to have, um, you know, put the money where their mouth is and to ensure, um, you know, that, you know, both success and miss-success are shared. So that's something we look at as well in terms of uh, alignment of interests. Um, then certainly, you know, there's technical aspects in, you know, the, it's very complex in terms of tax tax consequences if you invest in private equity, um, you know, the, you need to make sure things are, you know, properly set up from a legal structure. So kind of, you know, the, the going through and making sure there's no red flags. Um, so these are kind of, you know, the, the things um, you, would, you would find in a, you know, a book, where, you know, written about due diligence on private equity. I think the other um, um, topics you can't um, really find in kind of, um, you know, a university book is experience um, and also, you know, I, I guess um, the smell check, I call it, 
Um, and I think that um, you know you develop over time. And to give you a give you example, um, you know where where I had I guess my own pitfall. Um, you know, uh, back in back a few years, you know the U.S. Um, was a natural gas importer. Um, this um, you know with te technology progression changed uh, quite significantly. You know they developed these um, fracking technologies. And, you know, over time, uh, more or less, the U.S. became a natural gas exporter. And they used to be, obviously, a natural gas importer before. And this transition mechanism, you know, private equity actually played uh, quite an interesting role. Uh, you had all these, you know, kind of natural resource funds um, from, you know, the large players in the market, Apollo, Blackstone, you know, they all had funds. To kind of unleash, you know, this change um, from becoming an importer to an exporter, and I thought, you know, or we all thought back then in the investment committee, this is kind of a no-brainer decision. You know, you will make money on that trade. Um, you know, and there, I think, you know, we actually lost money. That's the only, you know, time I lost money on on a on a private equity investment is, you know, the 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 massive change in in oil and gas pricing actually then you know um, wasn't really considered by all these funds so they all more or less blew up you know um, across the board um, so and that's really i think kind of the lesson learned you need to make sure um, it, you you don't play kind of a small segment of the market so it was very you know focused on on one trade and i think the the trade overall um, didn't hold true over the years that brings me kind of to this, to to these pitfall um, um, topics um, on private markets. I think absolutely key um, is to be diversified, and I think that's the, the the common pitfall people do. They fall in love with a business, you know, invest large sum into one single company, or one single co-investment, or one single you know fund investment, as in in my example. On this natural resource trade but I think it's very very important not to do that and I always use this analogy of a wine cellar so you know me forward-looking I want to you know um, celebrate the birthday in in 10 years um, I wouldn't go to the wine shop and you know buy um, 17 bottles of, of the same wine same vintage you know say same grape and that concept, you know, really applies on, on the private equity side as well. You need to diversify, you know, across different vintages or so different years. Um, these investments are made, different uh, geographies, um, different um, wine grapes, you know, different managers. So the diversification um, is key. Um, then people, I think, really, especially if we, we talk to kind of individual investors, um, they often underestimate the complexity of, you know, accessing these these opportunities. And complexity can be uh, many folds, you know, uh, the biggest topic certainly is kind of tax. You know, how, how, it, how are these investments or these returns uh, coming back to the individual investor in terms of, you know, different tax regimes? can become quite complex given the structuring and the leverage used. So you need to understand kind of the, the tax consequences. 
Um, there's massive operational topics as well. You know, if you're an active investor in private equity, you know, you will receive what's called a capital call. So every time, you know, an investor makes uh, or purchases a business, he then in return goes back to the, you know, the initial people who gave him the money and um, um, calls capital on a pro rata amount on that investment. And if you, you know, if you use that diversification concept, suddenly you have, you know, 50, 20, 20 50, 30, um, you know, capital calls each year um, and becomes actually quite complex because you sometimes only have five business days to wire the money over. Um, so you almost need kind of an accounting department taking care of that. And then um, maybe the last point on complexity, certainly, you know, um, structuring related. I think, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, regulation has uh, increased across the board on the public side, but also on the private equity side. So, you know, kind of the, 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 how you structure deals and, you know, that you need to ensure you're in control of the structure is key to address all these regulatory, you know, questions which coming um, your way. So these are some some of the, the pitfalls, um, you know, um, maybe the last one to mention is certainly kind of, I call it the, the ultra high net worth trap, you know, where people really think, you know, um, they, they made money, you know, as an entrepreneur or through inheritance. Um, sometimes they believe, uh, given the wealth they have, you know, they, they can be good investors. And I think that's a the big uh, pitfall. Um, you know, then I think it's really challenging and you do need expert advice to address, you know, tax, operational, structuring kind of topics. Uh, and then also, you know, the ultra high netters often doesn't really have access to the best opportunities. Meaning, you know, going back to that concept of dispersion, um, you really want to try to get access to this kind of top quartile or the top 25% of the, you know, the sub-segment of the market. Uh, so, so Manuel, listen, thank you very much for uh, taking us this uh, walk through private equity. We will wrap up the podcast uh, here. Uh, I want to thank you very much uh, all for uh, listening. You've been listening to, of course, Beyond the Benchmark. We will speak to you again next week. Thank you. Thank you.